Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with pro-choice activists demonstrating in front of the homes of Chief Justice John Roberts and Justice Brett Kavanaugh and look into the growing risk that if and when the Supreme Court strikes down Roe and Casey, that will spark anger, while draconian laws passed in red states will lead to interstate conflicts between abortion refugees and their protectors and anti-abortion vigilantes. Joining us to discuss the looming possibility of civil unrest in this election year, in which a fired-up Democratic base will be facing massive Republican voter suppression in November to deny a majority vote, is Stephen March, a novelist and culture writer who has written for The Atlantic, New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, The New Yorker, Esquire, and many other outlets. His books include The Unmade Bed and How Shakespeare Changed Everything, and his latest book is The Next Civil War, Dispatches from the American Future. We will discuss his article at The Guardian, The Supreme Court's Coming Abortion Ruling May Spark a New Era of U.S. Unrest. Then, following the announcement by President Biden today that 48 million low-income households will be able to get broadband internet from the big telecom monopolies for $30 a month, we will speak with Christopher Mitchell, the director of the Community Broadband Networks Initiative at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. A leading national expert on community broadband networks, he runs muninetworks.org, the comprehensive online clearinghouse of information about community broadband and we will discuss how much more needs to be done to enable competition so that consumers don't have to be stuck with crappy service at exorbitant prices. Then finally, we'll look into corruption and impunity at the United Nations involving a little-known UN agency that had an extra $61 million to play with, a lot of which went to a crooked British businessman and his daughter, that financed a video game and a pop song instead of cheap housing in poor countries. Joining us is Dulcie Limeback, the founder of Pass Blue, which she edits and writes, covering primarily the United Nations, peacekeeping operations and women's issues. Previously, she was an editor for the Coalition of the UN Convention Against Corruption, was the Public Agents Director of the United Nations Association of the USA, and was an editor at the New York Times for more than 20 years. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our non-profit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Stephen March, who's a novelist and culture writer who's written for The Atlantic, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, The New Yorker, Esquire, and many other outlets. His books include The Unmade Bed and How Shakespeare Changed Everything. And his latest book is The Next Civil War, Dispatches from the American Future. And he has an article at The Guardian, The Supreme Court's Coming Abortion Ruling May Spark a New Era of U.S. Unrest. Welcome to Background Briefing, Stephen March. Pleasure to be with you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And there have already been demonstrations 
on Saturday at the homes of both the Chief Justice John Roberts and the Justice Brett Kavanaugh. And today, Monday, there are protests outside of the home of Justice Samuel Alito. President Biden is very critical of these protests, saying, the White House spokesman saying, they support protests, but protests should never include violence, threats, or vandalism. Judges perform an incredibly important function in our society, and they must be able to do their jobs without concern for their personal safety. So how does this play into the scenario that you have written about in The Guardian, the Supreme Court's coming abortion ruling may spark a new era of U.S. protests? These weren't violent protests. They were described as candlelight vigils, in fact, But there is a portent for, particularly when the actual ruling comes down, assuming it goes the way that most people expect, do you think things are going to get worse? Yeah, I mean, I I definitely think things are going to get worse on a number of fronts. I mean, there has been some violence already at an anti-abortion clinic in Madison, Wisconsin. Um, And, you know, this is this is exactly the danger of living in a pseudo democracy or anocracy which is where you, where you, you know, where you, you know, because civil unrest, violence tends to not happen in democracies and it tends to not happen in autocracies. It's when you're in the gray area that it really starts to happen. And the Supreme Court ruling is a perfect example of that, where you have five out of the nine Supreme Court justices selected by, um, you know, presidents who did not win the popular mandate. Um, You have them going back on a right that has been you know, 50 years, established for 50 years in the United States, and which is, you know, popular by, you know, about 70% of the country supports broadly. Um, You know, it is a basic expectation of life in the United States. So you have a minoritarian party removing rights through a quasi-legitimate process. Violence is inevitable. Like that, that, that's not a, like, that's not it, it, whether it's acceptable or not, of course it's unacceptable, but you know, they're, they the legitimate means of making policy removed. There, you know, there are other ways of, of making your voice heard. And, and those, and those ways are very, very ugly. That's why, um, the system in breakdown, um, is so very, very dangerous. And you mentioned the uh, Wisconsin headquarters of the Wisconsin Family Action and the anti-abortion group. It was attacked. There was an attempt to set it on fire, and a message was spray-painted on the walls. If abortions aren't safe, then you aren't either. Right. So, you know, normally the, <laughs> the violence or what seems like violence in terms of verbal abuse, etc., has been coming from the anti-abortion people who've been sort of vigilantes and, well, well there have been a number of assassinations, in fact, yeah. of abortion doctors. Uh, but it's common practice for for anti-abortion zealots to show up at uh, abortion providers and scream at people coming to get an abortion and that sort of activity. Is that being matched by the other side now? Well, I think they're very late to the process. So the right has a very... A high degree of consciousness of the collapse of the system. They have far-right militias that are, you know, essentially an armed wing of a political movement. The left really doesn't have anything like that, although I think there are other forms of resistance that we're going to see emerging from the left, particularly through technology, I think. Um, but, you know, the anger does not go one way. Like, you know, that often seems to be the thing with uh, when I talk to people on the right in America, they think that the anger is coming from their side. 
and that the other side needs to respond to it. But I think, you know, this anger builds on itself and abort, you know, feeds on off both sides. And the anger, I think, for Americans on the left is is going to only increase as these, you know, pseudo legitimate bodies increasingly take their rights away. Um, you know, abortion, of course, is going to be the most toxic of all of these issues because you're going to have a, a, a combination of factors. You're going to have, you know, one thing, the outlawing of abortion doesn't work. It doesn't actually lead to decreases in abortion rates. Like it, it's not actually a an aspect of life where simply outlawing it tends to have big effects. Um, it will just shift ground, as we already saw in Texas, uh, to either, you know, uh, medical abortions or just out-of-state abortions. So, you know, you're going to have some very disappointed anti-abortion activists who, who want to take even bigger steps. And then I think you're going to see left-wing people who really feel like this is just simply, well, I mean, Margaret Atwood called it a form of slavery, right? And so you are getting to a place where uh, both sides are going to feel that the system is completely uh, incoherent and does not reflect popular will. And, um, and and the reactions to the, and that the and that the political system is not really capable of negotiating this in a reasonable way, and um, that that's why this is just the beginning. Like this is this is going to get much much worse over the coming years. The idea, you know, Alito's idea that we're going to calm this down by taking it out of the court system uh, is laughable, right? I mean, it's going like when it when this becomes when this hits states legislatures and then. If it comes to an, a, a national abortion ban, um, you know, the, the toxicity of that debate will be, you know, un, unprecedented, even by American standards. Well, it would seem, though, that if this becomes a motivating factor to get the Democrats out to vote, and they'll need massive vote to turn out in order to overcome the comprehensive and widespread voter suppression that's underway at state levels and with precinct levels. I mean, the, the strategies are multi-layered and the Republicans are determined to create a one-party state in this country. I mean, they want to follow the model of uh, Viktor Orban in, in Hungary. It's all incredibly Correct. evident. And yep. even a very conservative uh, Republican judge, there, Michael Ludic, the other day wrote an op-ed uh, or an essay warning that this was happening. So we've, you've got that going on. So the idea that the abortion ruling or banning abortion ruling by Alito's court, now I call it Alito's court because I don't think Roberts is really in charge. Anymore, um, clearly. And basically you'll have a situation where you have a record turnout of Democrats motivated for the first time, <laughs> unusually motivated because of this ruling. And then if they their votes are stolen or disappeared mm -hmm. or ignored, won't they be angry? Well, I, I mean, anger is not really a, an adequate description. I think they will legitimately feel that they're not living in a democratic system anymore, that they're living in a tyranny. And the consequences of that are very grave. I mean, you know, the, you're worried about it this year, but by 2040, you know, 50% of the country will control 85% of the Senate, right? There's nothing anyone can do about that other outside of you know ending the first american republic and 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 not following the constitution anymore so when you get to that point and needless to say that 50 percent that will control 85 percent of the senate are overwhelmingly white non-college educated white men from rural communities who have are much more allied with anti-abortion and much more allied with christian politics generally 
So, you know, when you, so that is coming, right? Like that, that a system is coming and it is, um, you, you know, I, I think when, if, an, if like if a national abortion ban was passed, w- how would the citizens of New York and California respond? Because I don't think that they would legitimately feel that that was a political contest that they lost. I think they would feel that that was a imposition of the removal of rights against them by people who did not listen to them and in which they had no say. So that's a, that's a really, that's different than the political anger that, you know, is normal, right? Like, and, and which, you know, and which determines politics to, to some extent everywhere that there's antagonism between different parties. That's a, there's a sense of delegitimization, which makes recovering from those decisions and, and, and achieving some kind of national unity possible that's not going to be possible anymore. Um, and, and, and that's why, I mean, that's why I wrote this book, right? I mean, that's like, the, the, you know, it, this is just the beginning of this. When you get to 2040 and it becomes very clear to everyone that it's not, um, that, that the, this is not a one man, one vote, one person, one vote situation. This is a, you know, a, a very stacked deck. Um, h- how will people respond? I mean, I think that is a question that only history will answer. But I, I don't think it will be with peaceful submission. But abortions are becoming rarer and rarer. And yes. 54% of all abortions now in the United States are conducted by medication. So to some extent, Stephen, isn't this a phony issue? Absolutely. So don't, don't we have oh, to it look... It couldn't be more phony. I mean, yeah. that's the thing that's so upsetting. Like, you know, if you want declining abortion rates, like... There are many, many, many things you can do, I, and 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 you should do them. Like, I mean, I personally feel it. Like, this is just my opinion, but like, I think having a political goal of declining abortion rates is a completely legitimate political goal, right? But that's not like out banning it, punishing women, uh, you know, using the court system, charging women with murder. Uh, trying to ban contraception, like like for various forms of contraception, this is an insane approach to this question. When you know, not to be, you know, to be frank about it, like any city you're in in America, you can go and buy heroin for about ten dollars. Like you can't you, you, banning things and just using the police to to regulate them is actually a very poor way of trying to control, you know, social activities. So. You know, there are, you know, Canada, the country where I'm from, we have a fraction of the abortion rate of the United States. And, you know, it is there are no federal laws of any kind about abortion in Canada. It is strictly a matter between a woman and her doctor. So, you know, this is this is absolutely a a phony political war. If you want to instate policies that lead to declining abortion rates, there are many, many things that you can do. Banning them would not make the top 10 list. But the irony, of course, is that that would require compassion and it would also require a kind of bipartisanship because like the, the simple, the number one factor in, in declining abortion rates is women having more control over the reproductive health and being more educated about the reproductive health. So, you know, and that's not you know, women and girls having access to that. So, but of course, that's not what this is about. This is about some vision of uh, controlling human sexuality that is completely outside of policy itself. So, you know, this is this is a this is what happens with these hyperpartisan toxic political systems and breakdown. They take these issues which there are many solutions to, 
right? There, there are many political solutions too, and they turn them into these battlegrounds that that become violent, really forgetting what, what the actual purpose uh, of of government policy. But yeah, I mean, it, it's 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 definitely something that. If you were taking a policy approach to it, if you were taking a, a, a rational approach to it, there are many, many strategies that can lead to declining abortion rates. None of those strategies are being uh, even considered. What instead is being considered is this, you know, this this fracturing of the national legal system, which is what in effect will happen if Alito's ruling is what it looks like it's going to be. There's going to be two legal systems in the United States, and the status of a woman in you know, Mississippi and the status of a woman in New York will be very different things. Well, indeed, the Alito decision, of course, is the case is, is a Mississippi case. And Mississippi's Republican governor, Tate Reeves, on Sunday refused yeah. to rule out the banning of contraception in conjunction it's incredible. with... Yeah, this is the so, 21st century. So, this but is the, the most question, advanced economy in the world. They're, they're considering banning forms of contraception. What's next, yeah. divorce? Right. I mean... I mean, well, I don't know. Like, well, I, I, uh, you, we know that the the legal mechanism is attacking the very foundation of a lot of other laws, which are privacy rights. So right. they'll go after gay marriage and inter interracial marriage and contraception, which is clearly on the agenda, at least for the Mississippi governor. But I think, yeah. Stephen, though, don't we have to look at, when you say it's a phony issue, which you've addressed that, what is really underlying this thing? And what's the real agenda? Is it some kind of tribal identity we're talking about here? Well, I mean, I think there is. Well, look, I mean, I don't think being anti-abortion is necessarily a an illegitimate political desire. Right. I mean, I think that that and it's not minoritarian. It is there is a substantial group of people in the United States and elsewhere in the world who are anti-abortion um, and, 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 and they want that political and they're using means to get to that political goal. So, I mean, but what I mean, there are also elements of Christian nationalism in the United States that are quite fierce and quite and quite intense. Um, there are forms of white you know, you know, white evangelicalism that have taken this issue to be the sum total of their politics. You know, there so there are many, many things coming, you know, coming to bear. But I think the larger issue really is that you have a breakdown of a system of compromise and you have the breakdown of politics itself. And I mean, that, like if you if you're asking me as an outsider what I see, like it's not so much this issue among all the others, uh, like among the voting rights issues. Those are all very important. But what you're dealing with here is the breakdown of politics and the breakdown of a sense of legitimacy of the court system, which, you know, when you when you lose that, you've really lost an enormous part of what it means to be belong to a civilized nation, frankly. And that loss, I think when, when you I mean, I think John Roberts is sitting, you know, unable to sleep tonight, knowing that when that loss happens, it will never come back. Um, and he will he will have that on his conscience in history. That will be his role in history is overseeing the delegitimization of the American legal system. And th that's a that's a terrible burden on his soul. So just in closing, then, I mean, we can see this already happening, can't we? I mean, I've been reporting on it for some time, the idea that yeah. this one man, Leonard Leo, this Opus Dei, very, very radical conservative, 
has chosen all of these judges through the Federal yeah. Society and funded it through dark money, and that in itself is outrageous. I mean, this is you talk about mon minoritarian. This guy is an incredible minority, even within the Catholic faith. His views are on the fringes. Yes. So he's had this extraordinary amount of power. So it's not just Christian nationalism. It's an alliance of Christian nationalists and plutocrats that are, that are driving this thing. Well, I mean, you know, the, the, it's very interesting because, like, I actually think the plutocrats are mostly Democrats. Um, like I, I think, you know, when you look at the dark money raised in the last, ele the last election, you know, more money, dark money was raised by Democrats than Republicans, but you know, it hardly matters. Uh, you know, I mean, it, like, because, you know, when you're dealing with the amount of dark money raised in the last election was, I think it was $2.1 billion in the end. Nobody, right. not the New York times. And I mean, not the Washington post, not the wall street journal who have the, I mean, those are the best reporters in the world has any idea where it came from. Like, do you understand? Like, yeah, I know that, that's how, the very nature how, of dark money. That's that, the that is, that's the that, Citizens that is, United decision that's brought about could, this thing. It's the same Supreme Court we're talking about. When you don't know, when no one knows who is paying for your elections. I mean, so yes, this breakdown is general. Now, I, I'm not saying that to excuse one particular element. Like, obviously, I think this there, you know, this imposition from a you know an extremely radical Christian wing. Uh, of American public life somehow seizing over the court system to impose its will on an unwilling American people is obviously a disaster in the making um, and, you know, is going to result in extreme forms of resistance. I mean, I, I, I just I really believe that that that's what happens in other countries. It's what happens in history. Um, I, I don't see any reason to think that America would be an exception. Uh, you know, you know, so that that, you know, I, I'm not excusing that. Um, but on the other hand, like what you're dealing with here is a political system in collapse. And that's what needs to be addressed. Right. Like, a political system like, like, and a legal system in collapse. It's... Yeah. Well, and the two the, and, the, and the legal system is the last to go. But in this case, it, it really is so obviously like it's so obviously illegitimate. Uh, that, you know, in, it, it will not stand. But of course, you know, as we said, it, we genuinely don't know what's next. Like they could right. become emboldened and want to, you know, they are talking about fugitive women laws, right? They're talking about, you know, banning women from traveling. So are they going to set up a DEA for birth? I mean, I, I don't know how else they would impose this mandate on the women of Texas, like, uh, you know, so and, and, and I don't I also don't understand how they're going to make distinctions between, uh, you know, their no, you know, their notion of birth begins, at you know, life begins at fertilization with IUDs or, or other forms of birth control. And so like it, it really become or plan B. Right. So uh, it, it really is unclear how far they're willing to go. And also, you know, I think another thing that, you know, strictly from predicting the future point of view here that you should remember is that in when these systems fail and you know this anti-abortion like if they win this it won't lead to decreases in abortion that will lead the anti-abortion people to feel even more betrayed and will lead to them feeling that they need to take even more radical steps to prevent this from happening and that's why this tends to ratchet up very quickly and tends to spiral out of control very quickly so just in closing, I, I, when I mentioned the Christian Nationalist Alliance with plutocrats, it's referring to the Koch brothers, 
proof plates, yeah. not not the Democratic donors in the last election with dark money, because there's an agenda with this right-wing Supreme Court not just to ban abortion, but to deconstruct the administrative state and take away all of the power of the government to regulate anything to do with the public uh, through the Environmental Protection Agency, through OSHA, and through CDC, which they've already moved on so far. Yeah. So that was and they're I winning. Meant. And they're but, winning. Exactly. Well, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it very much, Stephen Marsh. Always a pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Stephen Marsh, who's a novelist and culture writer who has written for The Atlantic, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, The New Yorker, Esquire, and many other outlets. And his books include The Unmade Bed and How Shakespeare Changed Everything. And his latest book is The Next Civil War, Dispatches from the American Future. And he has an article at The Guardian, The Supreme Court's Coming Abortion Ruling May Spark a New Era of U.S. Unrest. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into President Biden's announcement today that 48 million low-income households will be able to get broadband internet from the big telecom monopolies for $30 a month. It has always been around. It will always have a niche. But they'll make it a privilege, not a right, accessible only to the rich. Hey, pro-lifers need to dig themselves because life don't stop after birth. And for a child born to the unprepared, it might even just get worse. The situation would surely change if they were to find themselves in it. Supporters of the H-bomb and firebombing clinics. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Christopher Mitchell, the director of the Community Broadband Networks Initiative at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance a leading national expert on community broadband networks. He runs the muninetworks.org, the comprehensive online clearinghouse of, of information about community broadband. Welcome to Background Briefing, Christopher Mitchell. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us. And what do you make of the Biden administration's announcement today that low-wage earners can get high-speed internet for 30 bucks a month, uh, 100 megabytes, and that the big telecoms like AT&T, Comcast, and Verizon and 17 other providers have signed on to this plan. This is, uh, I think it's, it's good news. Um, it's not great news <laughs> because uh, the devil's always in the details. And there are millions of Americans for whom this simply won't be that effective. I think the thing to understand is that there is a subsidy program called the um, uh, Affordable Connectivity Plan. And that is a good program. The, what's new today is that these big ISPs have committed to offering a connection that will uh, be uh, the same cost as the amount of the subsidy for those who qualify for it. And the simple fact is that it's just not enough to really achieve digital equity. And so I find it a little bit disappointing to see President Biden um, celebrating these massive ISPs for effectively giving crumbs to families that really need much more. Well, these massive ISPs lobbied pretty heavily for the $1 trillion infrastructure package, the so-called bipartisan package that was largely drafted by uh, Senator Sinema and the Republicans. So it's not entirely surprising that uh, they got what they wanted because they lobbied against more generous and far-reaching and futuristic proposals uh, that are in the Build Back Better plan. Yes, you're exactly right. And it's, I think, frustrating that one could go even further to say that although 
President Biden's administration has people who are implementing the American Rescue Plan Act and the infrastructure bill in ways that will be good for communities, that uh, there are a lot of other programs that are going to do much more for digital equity that should get this kind of attention. But President Biden is, I think, very connected to the lobbyists from big companies like Comcast. And and I, I think that it's disappointing to see this much attention on just a few large monopolies as though they're the ones that are solving the problem. So what are the alternatives that he could? After all, Cinema and Mansion killed the possibility of Build Back Better, and she was the main negotiator on this bypassing infrastructure plan where in which the telecoms ran the table. So what alternatives did Biden have? Or could he be... Uh, investing in? Well, we could certainly go back to a year ago when President Biden suggested that the way to solve these problems and and not just solve the problems of low-income households, not just solve the problems of rural Americans, but actually solve the problems of all Americans, which is a lack of of choice, a lack of of really uh, having competitive markets in broadband because of the way the big companies have locked it up. Uh, So, embracing policies that would make them unhappy, that would um, make sure that when we're spending government dollars, we're doing it in a way that encourages competition rather than restricts it. Uh, But there's a whole other thing going on too, which is that these companies that President Biden is celebrating today are are funding a multi-million dollar campaign against Gigi Sohn, who would be, uh, I think, a, a tremendous champion for uh, all the things that we're talking about uh, if she was nominated, if she was confirmed to the Federal Communications Commission. Uh, but she was nominated and her confirmation is just sitting there while the White House celebrates the companies that are, that are coordinating this smear campaign that's deeply unfair against her. Uh, and so it's, just, it's frustrating to watch for someone who is in the middle of all of it. And I've spoken to Gigi Sen a number of times and she's a champion for the public over the uh, monopolies. So that's her main sin, right? Yeah, Gigi Stone is not just someone that's held in high esteem by public interest groups and, and, uh, and you know, anyone who, who really knows her and uh, her policies. Her, her opponents and the big companies that are funding these, on a personal level, they like her. They like that she takes this work seriously. They like that she does her homework. But they're deeply afraid of having her as a regulator. And so they're undermining her in ways that are just disappointing. And it feels like the, the Biden administration is content to let them attack her while she's left out there and not to actually push her confirmation through. And, and you know, I, I think sometimes people will think, uh, oh, well, like, you know, isn't this just a problem with Republicans? And, and yeah, it would be great if more Republicans, you know, were, nom- were, were voting for these important nominees. But fundamentally, this is an issue of Democratic priorities. The president and, and the highest levels of the White House want to talk as though broadband is an incredibly important issue. But their actions don't suggest that they see it that way when it comes to G.G. Sohn. Well, at the White House today... President Biden remarked in announcing this program in the White House Rose Garden that high-speed internet is not a luxury any longer. It's a necessity. So given that, what kind of service are these 48 million households going to get? If you're celebrating 100 megabytes per second as a huge achievement, and certainly $30 a month is affordable, 100 megabytes 
per second is a joke compared to the rest of the world, particularly in Asia and Europe. Yes, we do see the 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 thousand megabits a second, or what more commonly called a gigabit, as being um, more common now. And um, in places that have it in the United States, um, it's it's more commonly being used. Um, but I think the fundamental issue is, in my mind, is not jumping right to the speed issue. Um, and, and to be clear, like you said, 100 megabits, which is what the families will be getting. A gigabit would be 10 times faster, and that's what I get in my home on my cable system. Um, but the, the issue is more, is more one of practicality. Um, most American um, households that are getting this subsidy are using it for mobile plans because they need both mobility, you know, if they're riding the bus to work, if they're, if they're out traveling around. And so they're not even eligible for this on their cable service um, in their home or their, their service from an AT&T or something like that because they've already spent it on the wireless side. And so you just get a sense that the devil's always in the details. And this is not as exciting an announcement as one would think to have both the president and the vice, and the vice president showering praise on these massive companies who, you know, this is, this is the smallest thing that they could be doing. So, but it, in terms of the idea that it's no longer a luxury, uh, it's a necessity, is there a recognition of how important it is economically and competitively to have high-speed internet? I mean, because it makes such a difference in terms of education, in terms of business, et cetera. I mean, I have to say that, like, it would shock me if you sent your researchers back, and you may very well be your own researcher. But if you look, I bet, I bet President Obama said the same thing. I bet President Trump said the same thing. I don't know if President um, George W. Bush said the same thing, but, like, I'm just so tired. I feel like I have calluses. Uh, when it comes to elected officials saying broadband internet access is so important, we need to make sure everyone has it as long as it's not inconvenient for the big monopolies that are writing the big checks to my campaigns. That's what I hear. So why are they doing this? Why do they have such crappy service compared to other countries? In Europe and in Asia, uh, 1,000 megabits is standard, a gigabyte. You know, it's pretty rare in this country, isn't it? I mean, uh, you have it here in Santa Monica, California. You have it up in the Silicon Valley for obvious reasons. Chattanooga has its own municipal 1,000-gigawatt service, but it's not common. I mean, the best that I'm able to get where I live, and I need it because of my work, is 300 megabits. You know, and that comes from the monopoly that I have to deal with. I don't have a choice. It infuriates me. Well, you are joined by a vast majority of, uh, of other residents of the United States in that. Um, you know, and what it comes down to is that in much of the rest of the world, they have, um, and, and I should say, actually, in most of the rest of the Europe and Asia and the large cities and in, and in more advanced countries that, you know, have larger economies um, in the entire country in those situations, you have fiber optic networks, which is an advanced technology. Most Americans uh, get their internet service from a cable company, which is, it's an okay technology, but it, it has reliability challenges and other challenges. Um, but in the rest of the world, in most cases, the owner of that fiber optic has to share it with other parties to create competition. And that's something that we sometimes call open access or wholesale arrangements. And we don't have that in the United States because of the power of the big cable and telephone companies and their lobbying. 
they want to restrict access to they're, they're the only ones that can use those data pipes to deliver service. There's a number of cities that are experimenting with ways to try to uh, open up new pipes, put in fiber optics that will be owned by the city like Chattanooga. But unlike Chattanooga, then they would be open to multiple companies to compete upon. This is a model used to great success from a network called Utopia in Utah. And it's a network that struggled for many years, but then figured it out and has been on a real success expanding for the past 10 years. It's a new model, but like one of the things that I see from local governments that consider this is the cable and telephone companies go out of their way to, to try to get the people fired who are considering it for cities. It's, it's really dangerous if you're trying to upset the apple cart of these powerful incumbents. But still, Christopher, I'm mystified as to why these big companies inflict crappy service at high price when they have the technology. The fiber optic cables are laid, as far as I know, yet they won't turn on the switch. And they think it's a big deal to get 100 megabits per second, but it's an embarrassment. Well, most homes are not connected to fiber optics yet. Um, like I said, when it comes to the Internet access that people are using today, most of them are getting their Internet access from a cable company like a Comcast Xfinity or a Charter Spectrum. Those companies actually have the ability to offer much faster speeds on their technology, and they are rolling that technology out slowly. If there was real competition in the United States, we would see that those cable networks would be faster, and we would see that there was new investment in fiber optic cables to connect everyone's homes. But it's, it's very difficult, and often because of political decisions that are made by state legislatures and by folks in Washington, D.C., that favor the incumbent big cable and telephone companies um, in terms of, of, of how easy it is to build networks. So my crappy service from Spectrum is the result of the lack of competition. In other words, the fact that I can't turn to anybody else to get better service, you know, because since COVID, I've had to broadcast from home and I rely entirely upon the network. That's right, because Charter Spectrum knows that the vast majority of their customers cannot go anywhere else to get a better connection. Um, the Charter Spectrum connection has multiple hiccups an hour when I talk to people in Los Angeles, for instance, or in Maine, in Portland, Maine. Um, and I noticed it because I'm on a Comcast cable connection, which is comparatively good. But there's lots of people on cable connections uh, that it's just not very good. And the cable company does not have a lot of incentive to improve it because you're still their customer after all these years and you're frustrated with them, but you haven't moved to another provider. Um, now, the issue is, is if another provider came to town, Comcast, Comcast or Charter Spectrum would immediately lower prices. And that makes it difficult for that new competitor to get enough customers because your neighbors would often take that temporary deal, you know, to, to knock their bill that maybe in half or down by 30 percent. And that would starve a new network of, of uh, customers. And that's why we don't see private sector competition. When you look at this dynamic, it hasn't really changed in 30 years. And that's why many of us argue we need smart government policies to encourage competition. That is where we've been lacking for the past 23 years or something like that, 27 years, I don't know. Um, it's since 1996, we're supposed to have competitive telecommunications markets. And 
um, the government has kind of tried to remove barriers, but it has not proactively encouraged competition. That's what we thought the Biden administration would do, and that is what it has really not done. And when I see this in, uh, event today um, in the White House with celebrating Comcast and AT&T and Charter, it looks like the White House surrendering on its agenda of actually fixing the broadband market. And why do you think that is, though? Is it because they can do what they should do, but they haven't because of campaign donations? Or is it because they simply can't do it? Who's, who's got the power here, the cable monopolies or the government? I think the government should have the power. Um, we've seen a real change. Um, but the cable, the big cable and telephone companies have a tremendous amount of power. And the reason I'm hedging a little bit is because we've seen some states actually legislate more in the public interest since the pandemic began. And I think the cable and telephone companies are not as strong as elected officials think. The elected officials just haven't figured out how to tap into the popular resentment against the cable and telephone companies. But the, the main thing is that wh where was the first fundraiser that President Biden went to after he declared for president? It was at Comcast. These companies are very tied into the political parties. They know what they're doing. They, you know, they, they make billions of dollars in profit every year, and they reinvest a small part of that into lobbying and campaign donations. And not just that, but controlling philanthropy. I mean, if you look at cities that are thinking about building their own network, suddenly nonprofit groups are saying, well, that would be bad. And that's because those nonprofit groups get a lot of money from the cable and broadband companies. Those big companies know how to throw their money around, and it's not always in the obvious ways that they do it to promote their agenda. Well, I thank you very much for joining us here today. I appreciate it very much, uh, Christopher. Thank you. And I think, you know, I just want to say that, like, we've had 11 years of subsidized service via programs like Comcast Internet Essentials, and it's better than doing nothing for low-income households, but it just is not solving the problem that we really need to solve. And for that, we need to be more creative. Well, I thank you again, Christopher Mitchell, the director of the Community Broadband Networks Initiative at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. He's a leading national expert on community broadband networks. He runs muninetworks.org, the comprehensive online clearinghouse for information about community broadband. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into corruption and impunity at the United Nations involving a little-known UN agency that had an extra $61 million to play with, a lot of which went to a crooked British businessman and his daughter that financed a video game and a pop song instead of cheap housing in poor countries. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Dulcie Limeback, who is the founder of Pass Blue, for which she edits and writes, covering primarily the United Nations peacekeeping operations and women's issues. Previously, she was an editor for the Coalition for the UN Convention Against Corruption, was the publication director of the United Nations Association of the USA, and was an editor at the New York Times for more than 20 years. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dulcie Limeback. Hello. 
from Hi, New York. Dulcie. Thanks for joining us. And what do you make of this scandal of corruption and impunity at the UN, which we're learning about now, where a little-known UN agency had an extra $61 million to play with, and about $25 million of that went to what seems to be a crooked British businessman and his daughter to produce a pop song, a video game, and a website promoting the environmental threats, awareness of the environmental threats to the world's oceans, instead of going to build cheap houses for the poor in poor countries, uh, which never happened. So this is an amazing story. Yeah, it's um, sort of not surprising. I was actually tipped off by a whistleblower last summer about um, possible corruption in that agency, UNOPS. Uh, You know, they all have funny acronyms. Um, but uh, he, he uh, was uh, sort of laying out a very, very complicated story, and it was right in the middle of the General Assembly annual session. So I didn't, look, I didn't go into it too far. And uh, he actually, the whistleblower emailed me the other day to say there's, there's much more there to be looked at at the agency you know, it's one of those many small entities in the UN that uh, acts and behaves independently uh, outside the secretariat. Uh, so, um, you know, the, the money flows and the the responsibility and the, the monitoring of the the uh, how the money is spent. Um, it is sort of astounding, especially when the UN is uh, like the World Food Program is crying for money to feed you know, hungry people, people in famine conditions. So, you know, it doesn't make sense, and it's very frustrating, and I think it's very frustrating for the Secretary General, too, especially as he's trying to uh, take some concerted actions, humanitarian actions in Ukraine. So it it's, it's not good for the UN. It's not good. And UNOP is the United Nations Office for project services, and it's been run by the former Norwegian Minister of Justice, who just stepped down, Greta Faramo. Right. But the story itself of how they made this deal with this British businessman and his daughter is pretty... <laughs> It's it almost sounds like Hollywood, you know, the idea you you gotta go out and meet people. So mm. this British mm. businessman is and his daughter at a party hosted by Gloria Star Kins, who apparently is a fixture of the United Nations. Do, do you know her at all? I, I know who she is. Yeah, yeah, she is a fixture. Yeah. 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 So she's quite elderly, but she has these sort of soirees for for diplomats, etc. And so at this party the Norwegian head of this UN agency, she is introduced to this British businessman and his daughter by none other than this Italian character who is an ambassador to a small Caribbean nation. Uh, he's the same man, Paolo Sampoli, who introduced Donald Trump to his current wife, Melania, uh, back when she was a model, or some people say she was actually a, a call girl, but nevertheless, that is the kind of strange provenance of this uh, project, is it not? 
Right. I mean, you know, it makes me think that uh, Greta uh, Ferramo uh, didn't know what she was doing, uh, that she was a just minister, and I think she was a defense minister as well. Uh, So she's suddenly in this obscure UN agency where money is flowing, surprisingly. And uh, she wants to be ambitious and and do ambitious things. And she gets uh, sort of embroiled in um, this huge mess. Obviously, some checks and balances weren't weren't made or done uh, in the whole process of awarding this grant money to this father and daughter. It's, you know, it's sort of astounding, but, uh, you know, I'd like to know where all this money came from to begin with. Why is this money being handed over to this U.N. agency if there's little uh, accountability, you know, if there's little oversight or very weak oversight? Maybe because she is Norwegian, dare I say, you know, so people just automatically trust her. But uh, and I think she said in the story that she sort of, didn't pay it close attention. And, uh, you know, there were, uh, there is lots of money flowing through the agency and they wanted to spend it and spend it in a big way, but, uh, they look very foolish and, uh, obviously there's corruption going on. But the original pitch apparently from this British businessman, Kendrick, was to build cheap and sturdy homes in the developing world. And, of course, not one of them were built, but yet somehow his daughter ends up with $3 million, and then she hires a British singer to do this pop song and to do a video game. And then the Italian guy, who's apparently Zampoli, who introduced Melania to Trump, he's the ambassador for the Caribbean island of Dominica. His deal was a conservation group which he called We Are the oceans, or Watto, like NATO. Watto is the NATO of the oceans, apparently was his motto. Didn't the Norwegian woman in charge of this agency end up singing this particular song to the General Assembly, which was largely empty because somebody that made a speech before had droned on forever? Yeah, I, I mean, you have to wonder about her judgment. And we don't know very much about her right now. Uh, so that's the big question. How how did she make such uh, poor, poor decisions? Maybe she was uh, swept away by New York City. You know, she's based in Copenhagen. So maybe she came to New York and uh, was sort of uh, deluded or was sort of uh, fooled by um, these you know, maybe this British guy was very charming and, and um, promised her, uh, you know, all sorts of inexpensive, affordable housing for the poor. I mean, that's always, you know, that's a great uh, idea. But the fact that maybe she didn't even look into it thoroughly, I don't know. It it, it sort of begs the question, who is who is this woman? You know, right. why is she in this job? Well, but it does sound a little bit like here out, out here in L.A., Dulcie, you know, where everyone's in showbiz, you know, or everyone wants to be in showbiz. <laughs> so. Well, you know, she was appointed by the Secretary General, uh, Antonio Guterres. So, uh, 
You know, he, he gets a lot of names submitted to him, left and right, by uh, countries uh, who want to have their people in in special places. So maybe he he was uh, told that she was, you know, she was a defense minister. She was a justice minister. I mean, how could you grow wrong, wrong with that? But Right, and she's a uh, Scandinavian who was sort of supposedly sort of upstanding and honest people, right? Yeah, well... <laughs> yeah, well, there's bad eggs everywhere. So uh, to me, the the story isn't over because uh, it does sort of beg the question about her her judgment and how she was able to fall down this rabbit hole. And uh, then the uh, the Russian has already been put on leave, so he he he's already. Um, Looks looks very bad, but uh, you mean her her deputy? You talking about him? Yes, her deputy. Yeah, yes. he's he's actually Ukrainian. He's a what? He's, oh, Ukrainian. he's Ukrainian. Yeah. Oh, he's not Russian. Okay. No. Well, uh, you know, so the overall question is not only about her, but the whole uh, UNOPS agency. I mean, when I started to look at it closely. Uh, the website was so underwhelming that I thought, well, they must be hiding something because there's hardly anything here. And uh, so that's always, you know, the first clue is, well, where is where is, where are the the documents you need to show the public that you're, you know, you're a bona fide agency with, you know, good auditors and good oversight. And uh, you know, I was totally unimpressed with the website to start with, and. Uh, so, so there you go. It's uh, a small UN entity where money mysteriously or for some reason flowed. I mean, it must have had been doing some good things uh, for all those countries to invest in it. But um, it's it's just uh, baffling. Well, in terms of the criticism that we're hearing about corruption, but but a culture of impunity keeps coming up in the in the stories that I read about this scandal. You, you cover the UN. I, I know from having talked to people that worked at the UN that they're very cushy salaries and they've got lots of benefits, right? So it's a great place to work, is it not? Well, uh, it depends on where you're working and what you're right. doing. I mean, it's, it's a, also a huge bureaucracy. So it sort of can be very, very stifling. Um, but... You know, for the most part, uh, the people I know who work there are very honest, upstanding, committed people. Um, but there's, it's a sprawling, sprawling organization. And, and you get, you know, this one small agency where things are really going wrong. And then the whole rest of the UN is besmirched. And also the UN is, is indeed, uh, you know, a, a collection of member states, so they're all responsible, and uh, you know they're they're all sort of seem to want a piece of the pie, and so you can't really just blame the UN itself, the people sure. who work at the UN. Well, in contrast, I mean, I saw a clip the other night on I think it was on CNN or one of the cable news programs of the head of the food program is in Ukraine where there's a food crisis. Because of the war, he's—I think—he's a former governor of uh, South Carolina, and he was very eloquent about the problems he's facing. But when you look at the heroic work that 
he and others are doing under terribly dangerous conditions. And as you mentioned earlier, the shortage of funds for the World Food Program, because the war in Ukraine is going to create famine around the world, then when you think about the 61 million or how many millions disappeared compared to the millions that they desperately need for needy people, mm-hmm. it is a bit sad. Yeah, and uh, so it's hard to, to pin down what, what the problem is. Um, but, you know, obviously re- reform has to happen, and it's very elusive. Uh, they have tried and tried and tried, but uh, it requires just, dogged, persistent work. And, uh, you know, there is a new uh, uh, diplomat working for the U.S. mission to the U.N. His name is Chris Liu, and he, he seems to be on top of some of this, these uh, problems. He just started a few months ago. So, uh, and he was tweeting away on this particular scandal. So it just takes a lot of effort to root out the, the uh, bigger problems and then even the smaller problems. Uh, and it's so easy for the Secretary General to get totally distracted by, you know, the crisis of the day. So uh, it's just sort of a, a victim of its own, you know, sprawling sprawling en- entities and operations and little oversight from agency to agency. Um, so... Sure. And, yeah. I, you know, the World Food Program is not a, a sacred cow either. They, You know, they have some internal politics, uh, internal problems going on, too. So, Well, Dulcie, I thank you very much for joining us. I appreciate it very much. <laughs> okay. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And again, I've been speaking with Dulcie Limebeck, who is the founder of Past Blue, which she edits and writes. It covers primarily the United Nations peacekeeping operations and women's issues and previously she was an editor for the coalition for the UN Convention Against Corruption and was the publication director of the United Nations Association of the USA and was an editor at the New York Times for more than 20 years. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.